Podcastle 114 for July 20th, 2010. Wolves Till the World Goes Down by Greg Van Eekout. Rated R for violence and some gore. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson and I'd like to welcome you all to the end of the world. That's right, I think it's about time we at Podcastle bring you some well-deserved Ragnarok for your listening pleasure. So, let's pretend it's your last night before the end of the world. What would you do? Go see some friends, get laid, hold the people you love, pray, rejoice, scream and mourn, get wasted, stay up for the sunrise, go back to sleep, riot, rage against the coming of the night? I guess the real question is, what do you want to do before it's all over? Certainly being with my family is an important one for me. I definitely want to be close to the people I love. I'd like to imagine I wouldn't stop there, though. I don't know about the rest of you, but if I found out the world was going to end tomorrow, I'd probably see if Escape Pod or Pseudopod had any new stories up. Hell, maybe I'd read and post an extra special story for the occasion. Kind of my own way of raging against the darkness. My way of saying sorry, I'm not done yet. So now you know, if the end of the world is imminent, make sure to refresh your podcatcher and join us at the end. Thankfully, the world will still be here tomorrow, at least as far as I know. But even if it was ending, this story would be an excellent candidate for the end of days. It's with great pleasure we bring you this week's episode, Wolves Till the World Goes Down by Greg Van Eekhout. This story was originally published in the Starlight Anthology, Volume 3, edited by Patrick Nielsen Hayden. It was also reprinted in Fantasy, The Best of 2001, edited by Robert Silverberg and Karen Haber, and reprinted again at Idiomancer. Greg Van Eekhout's a popular author here in the halls of Podcastle. He's had short stories published at all three Escape Artist podcasts, and also the Drabblecast and many other cool places. His latest book is the middle-grade novel Kid vs. Squid. He's got a post-apocalyptic middle-grade novel coming out for kids next year. Sounds like good, wholesome family fun, right? And he recently signed a deal with Tor to write a three-book series based on his short story The Osteomancer's Son, which Podcastle Faithful may remember from back in the early days. He was born and raised in Los Angeles and now lives in San Diego. You can find Greg online at writingandsnacks.com. If you need some Norse mythology with that Greg Van Eekout flair, I highly suggest checking out his excellent novel Norse Code, which this story served as the inspiration for. More on that afterward. Your narrator for this episode is everyone's favorite forgotten trickster god here at Podcastle and Odin's least favorite bastard. So bundle up, because it looks like hell's finally frozen over, the end is extremely frickin' nigh, and enjoy the story. Wolves Till the World Goes Down by Greg Van Eekout My brother and I flew recon over the gray Santa Monica beach, half-frozen rain striking our black feathers. Below, a skater swaddled in Gore-Tex swished around the curves of the bike path while surfers in wetsuits bobbed in the dark waters. It was the coldest winter on record in Southern California. It was the coldest winter everywhere. Hey, said my brother, down there. Without waiting, he dove toward the sand where a dead Rottweiler rolled in the white foam. It had been a long flight. We were both ravenous. I angled in to follow, and soon we were absorbed in our feast. A big gray gull challenged our salvage rights, screaming and beating us with his wings, but we tore him to shreds, ate him, then returned to the dog. Later, my brother would be able to report every minute detail of the incident. 
He described the precise markings on the gold's bill, the way he favored his left foot over his right, the iron and salt taste of his blood. But he wouldn't be able to say why we'd killed him. He's an expert at the what's and when's and where's, but he leaves the why's to me. His name is Moonen, memory. I'm Hugen, thought. Our hunger satisfied, we took to the skies again and continued south over the t-shirt shops and sunglass stands of Venice Boardwalk. When we reached the storm-shattered pier, we turned seaward, onward, away and beyond. We heard a blue whale sing its last song before dying of old age. We watched an undiscovered species of fish go extinct, and we saw something enormous on the ocean floor, slithering on its belly and churning waves hundreds of fathoms above. We flew and flew, carefully observing and cataloging so that later we could give Odin, our boss, an accurate report. But first, we had a special appointment to keep. Well past the horizons of Midgard, we came upon the shores of the dead. Hell's a dry place. It's a land of gray plains and twigs and dust. And in the center of this land lived a pair of slain gods. We found them reclining atop the roof of a great timber hall, passing a cup back and forth. The poets used to say that Balder was so good and pure he radiated white light, a sun compressed into human form. There used to be something about him, something that, when he walked by, made a man put down his drinking horn or stop hammering trolls for a second and just be glad he was alive to witness the moment. You knew that Balder, somehow, was what the whole thing was about. He was still beautiful, but not the same. Now he was cold and magisterial, a god of glaciers and dark stone mountains. He rose to his feet and announced our arrival to his brother. Hode was a much humbler creature, thinner in the shoulder, longer in the face, his shriveled eyes lost in dark sockets. He really didn't want to look into those sockets. They went a long way down. We landed on Baldur's outstretched forearms and dug our talons in a little to see if he'd flinch. He didn't, of course. Even exiled from the realms of the living, he was still a god. Just when I was thinking you wouldn't come, he said. I'm glad to see you. Let's go inside. Getting welcome to hell is in such an enormous thrill, but I politely thanked him anyway. His hall was cold and dimly lit. Pale flames wavered in the hearth, their light barely pushing back the shadows. A long table bore a modest feast, a few loaves of bread, a pair of emaciated roast pigs. Moonen perched on the edge of the table and appraised the fare. I guess it's a good thing we already ate. Hode's jaw muscle clenched. If you'd like to contribute to the meal, I can start plucking feathers right now. Balder laughed. Brother, he said in his gentle voice, we observe hospitality in my house. I think Hode would have rolled his eyes had he been capable. At the end of the table sat a plump old woman in a purple sweatshirt. The shopping cart beside her was filled with empty soup cans, magazines, rotting batteries, a sword hilt, a broken car antenna. Over her matted gray hair, she wore a Minnesota Vikings cap. She clutched a long twig in her left hand. Sybil, I said, nodding respectfully. I hadn't seen the witch prophetess in a long time, not since the world was younger and greener, when in exchange for a meal, she told Odin how the world would end. There is an ash tree, she said now. Its name is Yggdrasil. Lofty Yggdrasil, the ash tree, trembles, ancient wood groaning. Not knowing if she was uttering an incantation or just making conversation, I indicated the twig with my wing. 
Is that part of Yggdrasil? She shook the stick. Yggdrasil's an ash. Does this look like ash, stupid bird? Same old Sybil. We sat around the table and picked at the skinny pigs for a while before Balder asked us about affairs back in the land of men. Normally, we report only to Odin, but how often do you get invited to Balder's house? So Moonen spoke of the weather to Midgard, three winters, each colder and longer than the previous one, with little summer between. Floods, bad crops, people freezing in the streets, hoarding and price gouging and rioting and looting. Moonen didn't say the word. He didn't have to. We all knew where this was heading. Ragnarok. The great monsters would do battle with the gods, and most of the gods would be slain. Heimdall, Hermod, Frey, Thor, even Odin. A world without Odin. And the world itself would burn and crumble, and the ancient chaos that preceded us all would return. But from the ashes would rise the younger gods, and Baldur and Hode would end their exile in hell to help them rebuild. Moonen went on and on, citing windchill factors from CNN, until Baldur put an end to his chatter. Thank you, Moonen, he said, most thorough. My father is lucky to have your counsel. He turned his gray eyes to me. And you, Hugin, what will you tell Odin when you next see him? As if you didn't know, I almost said. But being Odin's agent and taught me to reflect before I speak, I'd play along for now. I can tell you of two brothers, I said, like you and Hode, two sons of Odin. And there, in a vast dry hall situated at the center of hell with a sibyl worrying her twig, I told Balder about an attempt to end the world. Moonen and I had watched the godling sons of Odin sail for many days and nights before they came to an island between worlds. As they neared the shore, Vidar threw the anchor over, jumped out, and waded toward the beach. He was much like his father, lean and rangy with a voice that rarely rose above a dry whisper. Vali was different. Forever a toddler, he scrambled over the gunwale and belly flopped into the waves, thrashed about as he realized his feet couldn't touch the stony sea bottom, then gave a mighty kick that sent him flying through the air and onto the beach. Did you see that? He said, delighted. I almost drowned. Vidar brushed sand off his half-brother's bottom. I saw. I could have been killed. Yes, you came perilously close to an untimely demise. Please follow, Vali. We have a task. The beach sloped up sharply from the tide toward a towering wall of jagged basalt. The gods began to hike up the rise. Vidar, I'm hungry. Possibly because you didn't eat your supper? Dried fish. I hate dried fish. I hate all fish. If I give you a piece of candy, will you be quiet? No. Vidar sighed and gave him a piece of candy anyway. All the gods in Asgard knew it was easier if he didn't anger Vali. They reached the rock wall and began to climb. Vidar, tell me a story. Now is not the best time. Vali pouted. You better tell me a story or I'll rip open your tummy and pull all the tubes out and then I'll choke you with the tubes and then I'll make you eat the tubes and then I'll... Vidar closed his eyes. Once upon a time there was... There was a god named Baldur, Valley cut in, and Frigg, his mama, loved him, and everybody loved him, and he was always very nice. So Frigg got everything in the world to make a promise. All the animals and flowers and birds and everything. She asked everything to promise to never, ever, ever hurt Baldur. 
A gust of wind picked up an unpleasant scent. Fur. Damp animal fur. Vidar continued his tale. As you said, Volley, Mother Frigg extracted an oath from fire and water and metal and stones, and from the earth and trees and beasts, from ailments and birds and poisons and serpents. She wrung promises from every conceivable thing that it would do Balder no harm. All except a young plant growing on the very skirts of Asgard, a small sprig of mistletoe. She felt it too small to be of any consequence. Volley's grip slipped and he tumbled until a rock broke his fall. Vidar climbed down and retrieved him. We don't have time for this. Climb on my back. They renewed the ascent, Volley riding piggyback. And so a game arose around Baldur's invulnerability, said Vidar. He would stand at the high seat during assemblies, and the Azir would hurl objects at him. Stones, spears, cauldrons of boiling water, wasp nests, all bounced off him and did no harm. But then Loki got all mad, interrupted Volley, and he put on ladies' clothes and tricked Frigg into telling him about the mistletoe, and there was Hode, and he was blind, and he couldn't play along, and Loki said, how come you're not playing? And Hode said, I'm blind, they won't let me play, and Loki said, that's not fair, and he gave Hode the mistletoe and said, throw it, throw it, and Hode goes, I'm blind, I can't aim good, but Loki helped him throw, and, and, catch your breath, brother, and try not to choke me. Your turn. Vidar crested the wall and peered over the summit. In the center of the island loomed a great, dark shape. The son of Odin swallowed and began his descent down the other side of the wall. Vali leaped off his back and scrambled after him. I said it's your turn, Vidar. Vidar's mouth set in a grim line. The mistletoe pierced Baldur's breast, he said, and it was... it was horrible. How can I tell you what it was like? You never saw him, brother. The scald say it was beautiful, but it was more than that. You know how when you look at Thor, he's like a great dark thundercloud stepped down from the sky to assume human shape? And the Yord, he's like the sea itself, tidal waves crashing in his eyes. Baldur was like that. Only, he personified everything that was, I don't know, good? Worthwhile? Vidar paused there, hanging off the side of the rock wall, his face haunted. Even Vali took notice and preserved the silence. Then finally Vidar said, He died. Right there in front of all of us. You could almost see the world change color. Nobody knew what to say or what to do. And the next day, we put him in a ship and sent him off to hell. That's the last any of us saw of him. And ever since then... We've been living out the Sibyl's prophecy. We, the great and mighty Azir. Puppets. Something at the foot of the wall made a noise. A low growl, a clink of metal. Come on, said Vidar. Let's cut some strings. They jumped the rest of the way, a twenty-foot drop. Vidar drew a sword and led the way to a shadowy, massive form chained to a boulder. It turned its blue liquid eyes to the brothers and watched them approach. But you didn't tell the good part of the story, Volley wailed. The part where Allfather Odin got mad at Hood for killing Balder because he loved Balder best of anybody. So he and my mama had me, and when I was just one day old, I jumped on Hood's chest and I put my arms around his throat and squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And then he was dead and he had to go to hell, too. You didn't tell that part. 
You told it very well, Folly. Now let's finish our job. Was she pretty? Was who pretty? My mama. Was she pretty? Volley, she was a giant. Volley stopped walking, his lips curling into a snarl. Vidar sighed. All right. All right. Words are insufficient to describe her gigantic beauty. She was the most lovely giantess that ever was, yes? Will that do? That satisfied Volley. The little god squared his shoulders, puffed out his chest, and took the lead toward the monster at the center of the island. Viewed head-on, the wolf was merely the size of an adult grizzly bear, but if you squinted just so and looked at it through the corner of your eyes, it was larger. Larger than the island that contained it. Large enough to dwarf the mountains, to swallow the sun and the moon. Vidar put a hand on his brother's shoulder, holding him firm. This is Fenrir Lokison, the wolf. He and I are destined to do battle at Ragnarok, and I will kill him, but not before he destroys the sky. The wolf's jaws were propped open by a sword, and its legs were bound by a silky ribbon connected by a chain to a boulder. Vidar raised his sword high in the air. The wolf stared at him placidly, his slow breath sending clouds of steam into the gloom. The ribbon binding him was made of six true things, from the roots of a mountain to the breath of a fish, but Vidar's sword was made of seven. He brought the sword down, parting the air with a thunderclap and sending up a shower of sparks as the blade cut through the chain. Then, gently, he sliced through the ribbon, removed the sword gag from the wolf's mouth, and Fenrir was free. Kill him! screamed Vali. Give me the sword! The child god lunged at the wolf, but Vidar grabbed him by the arms, restraining him. Fenrir bowed his great back, stretched his forelegs out, and yawned. He shook dust from his tail, then turned to Vidar. His mouth formed something of a smile. That was unexpected. Why set me loose? Vidar shrugged. We're tired of sitting around, waiting for Ragnarok to happen. Ah, said the wolf. I think I get it. Why wait for the fulfillment of the prophecy when you can ignite it yourself? Hasten the destruction of a few billion men, trolls, elves, giants, gods, horses, dogs, what have you. Usher in a sea of blood and fire and pain, the likes of which not even Odin can fully imagine. Just so you and your brother and the other little godlings can step out of the wings and take charge of the remains now. A plot worthy of Loki. Actually, said Vidar, I was just anxious to get to the part of the story where I kill you. I'll see you later then, said Fenrir with a laugh. He leapt into the sky, momentarily eclipsing the moon, before vanishing into the dark. The gods started back to the boat, and Moonin and I circled overhead for a time, watching them. Well, I said to Moonin, what do you think about that? He flapped his wings twice to gain altitude. Thinking's your department. With the shadows deepening in Baldur's Hall, Hode picked at the scant remains of the pig on his platter and shook his head. It seems entirely unacceptable to me that a psychopathic little toddler is due to inherit the world after the great battle. Is that an objective opinion, I asked? That has nothing to do with the fact that Volley slew you? It has everything to do with the fact that he slew me. If I wrung your feathered neck today, would you want to sit in council with me tomorrow? What kind of working relationship would that be? 
I turned to Balder. Maybe you could answer that question. What do you make of it when Azir try to bring about the end of one world just so they can hurry up and start ruling over the next? I so badly wanted Balder to say he found it reprehensible. I wanted him to be angry with the young gods. I wanted him to tell me he wasn't like them at all. He regarded me with an almost cynical smile. On his face, it was a sad thing to see. Those gods are Odin's progeny, the same as Thor or Hod or myself. They're doing what we're all doing, what we've done for thousands of years, playing their role in this hideous prophecy. Only they realized it was possible to accelerate the process. I admire their initiative. It's something we've lacked for too long. My feathers bristled. They should be patient, I argued. All they have to do is wait and they'll get what they want. Let things happen in the way they were meant to happen. The world ends, the gods and monsters fight, and the young gods inherit a new earth. They don't appreciate what a privilege that'll be, to rule over something new and fresh and green. They don't appreciate what an honor that is. And now I looked hard into Baldur's gray eyes. It's wrong to interfere with the prophecy. The corner of Baldur's mouth curved up in a small smile. Folding his ice-white hands on the table before him, he said, What do you do, Hugin? I shifted my weight from one foot to the other and cocked my head sideways. What do you mean? I mean, what do you do? You fly around and watch and analyze and calculate, and you whisper intelligence in Odin's ear. But do you actually do anything? The hall had grown colder by many degrees as Balder spoke. Why do you judge those who have the courage to act when you, thought, have only the courage to think? Before I could devise a response, he turned his attention away from me and spoke to Moonen. Do you remember my funeral? Of course. I'm memory. I remember everything. Odin came with his Valkyries, and Frey came in a chariot drawn by a boar, and Freya was there with her cats. Her dress was very pretty. And there were the trolls and elves, the mountain giants and frost giants. Everyone showed up. The Azir wept. Thor kept blowing his nose. And it made a great <clears throat> sound that shook the leaves from the trees. Leave it to Moonen to remember the thunder of Thor clearing his nostrils. I remembered something else. Odin the Allfather frightened me. And the dark hole left behind his sacrificed eye I saw his fear. He remembered the Sibyl's prophecy from so long ago. She'd told him that Balder would die, that his death would be the first step towards the doom of everything Odin had ever known. He'd always hoped that somehow the Sibyl would be wrong. Sometimes witch babble's just witch babble. But now there was the shocking white corpse of Balder, who Odin loved not in a way a war god loves a warrior, but in the way a father loves a son. That day, everything started to die. I thought about some of the things Moonen and I had seen recently. The world-spanning serpent who churned the waters, brewing tidal waves and hurricanes. Thor's son, Modai, had loosed him a week ago. And there was the ship of dead men's nails, freed of its mooring by the young god Magni. I thought of the bloodbath Midgard was becoming, with people killing each other over a can of ravioli. All the portents were coming true. Bent over her twig, the sibyl muttered softly to herself. And the serpent rises, and the children drown in its wake, and the blood-beaked eagle rends corpses screaming. Ragnarok, doom of the gods, doom of all. Battle axe and sword rule in an age of wolves till the world goes down. She spat upon the twig. 
And now, it wasn't a twig at all, but a spear with smoking runes burned down its side. I didn't recognize them. She put the spear in Hode's hands. Balder nodded. Tell me what Odin did at my funeral, Moonin. He wasn't looking at Moonin. He was looking at me. He laid the gold ring dropped near on your chest, Moonin said. And then he knelt at your side, brushed the hair off your forehead, just like he used to do when you were a boy. He whispered something in your ear. What did he whisper? Moonin opened his beak, paused, shut it. He looked at me and I shrugged. I didn't know either. On that awful day, Odin used his cunning and spoke in a voice not even I could hear. The Sybil snorted. I know what he said. I'm the one who gave him the words. And he had to say them too. Didn't want to, but he had to. No choice. That was my price for giving him a heads up about the future. Tell the ravens, please, said Balder. This. The Sybil's magic can give you true death. Balder stood at the table. Now, Hode, he said. Wait, I squawked. You're not really going to do this. Stupid, stupid bird. Balder wasn't working with Vidar and Vali. He wasn't interested in freeing monsters. He wasn't trying to accelerate Ragnarok and end his days in hell. With a slight shudder, Hode rose to his feet. He fingered the missile to a spear. I don't want to do this, he said. Not again. It's not fair. The prophecy says we get to live. That's what's supposed to happen, not this. Baldur's face darkened. I thought we were agreed. Who are we to build a new world on the corpses of others? After a very long moment, Hode lifted the spear over his shoulder. He sighed. I just... I just want to say thanks for not ever being mad at me. Everybody else hated me for killing you, but you always treated me like a brother. It's all right, said Balder. You are my brother. This has all been for my benefit, I said to Balder. Mine and Moonin's. That's why you sent for us. That's what this whole thing has been about. Balder nodded. I wanted Odin to know what happened here tonight. I wanted him to know why I did it. I was always the first link in the chain, the most important link. Remove me and the chain shatters. Send me to a true death. End my existence. Balder closed his eyes. Moonin can tell Odin of my deed, but you, Hugin, you have to tell him. I don't know. You'll think of the right thing to tell him. I could tell him something right now, I said. He'd never allow this. And if I don't stop to observe the world as I fly, I can be at his side before Hode lifts a finger. I know you can, said Balder. It would be very easy for you to do that. I felt a tightness in my throat. How often do you get to see a god defy the universe to save a world? How often do you realize that you can let it happen, or you can stop it? And how long do you have to think about it before you figure out the right thing to do? Hode pulled the spear back a little farther and took a deep breath. I took a deep breath, too. Your aim's too far right, I told him. A little left. A little more. There. Balder smiled at me this time with some of his old magic, and the hall seemed to warm, and I basked in him. Hey, wait, said Moonin. He was just now figuring it out. Can they do this? I shushed him. I think it'll be all right. And Balder stood there, his arms stretched out to his sides, and when the rune-burned mistletoe spear punched through his chest, he was laughing. The world changed color again. Moonin and I left them there, 
Hode staring blindly at his eyes, the Sybil reading her magazines, and Balder, not just exiled from the living, but truly and finally dead. Later, after the long flight home when we perched on Odin's shoulder and he asked us what we'd seen and heard, Unan told him everything in detail from his perfect memory. He told him of the break in the leaden clouds and the melting of the snow. He told him how we saw the great Fenrir wolf sink back to his rock, frightened for the first time of an unknown future. And me, Hugin, thought, I told him that he'd better start making some plans, because Balder had given us a whole new tomorrow, and today, anything was possible. And welcome back. Happy Ragnarok, everyone. You know, despite my personal love for post-apocalyptic scenarios, it is kind of nice to see the end of the world averted, the prophecy destroyed, and our fate in our own hands. What happens next is up to us. I asked at the beginning of the episode, if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow, what would you do? And now I've got another question for you. Suppose Private Hudson was wrong. It's not. Game over, man. What's stopping you from doing that thing right now? Because from where I'm sitting, it looks like there's still time. If you like what Greg Van Eekout did with this one, I can't recommend checking out his novel Norse Code enough. There's certainly some similarities between this story and the novel, but there's also plenty of differences. Without giving away too much, let's just say you might be surprised by which direction it goes. I did it backwards and read Norse Code first, and so when I read this story, I was pleasantly surprised. And Norse Code just might be the most fun you can have at Ragnarok. I do love the smell of Ragnarok in the morning, but you know what smell I love even more? Feedback. I was telling someone the other day that a lot of days I kick off my morning trawling the forum looking to see what you all thought about the most recent Podcastle episode. Yeah, sometimes I am a bit of a masochist, but it helps that I usually have a good cup of coffee with me. That said, wow. We need to talk about feedback for our latest giant, Hal Duncan's The Behold of the Eye, read by the elegant Marbell. I have to say I was more than a little shocked at the reception this one received, and no, I'm not even talking about the discussion on how we rate our episodes. I'm talking about how many of you gushed for this episode. Gushed, I tell you. You gushed about building shrines to Hal Duncan, about how time wasn't defined, about the behold of your behold, and most of all, you gushed for Fuzzy. Scattercat said, I love the image of Fuzzy, the most loyal Imago, smashing and destroying because it's the only way he knows how to help and just making it worse, worse, worse. I really like how the story portrayed the mutability of identity with the blankness slowly filled up by the things that strike us or make us think, gradually shifting in tone and theme while still maintaining a cohesion of character, I suppose. We are what we love and what we hold on to. Terry Lynn said, Fuzzy, from inception to name to purpose in the story, right down to his end scene, is one of the most incredible characters I've ever encountered. Friend, foe, catalyst, solution. Wow. Seriously, wow. An electric paladin said, This story was perfect. Unmitigatedly, brilliantly perfect. I loved every moment of it, and it made driving hard more than once. Like a lot of people, it seems I was most fond of Fuzzy. His transition from comforting toy to cartoon villain to genuine monster was handled deftly and subtly and left me shaking my fist gleefully at my car radio. 
Several of you even said it was one of your favorite podcasts ever. Of course, Anna and I bought this story because we knew it was good, but we knew it'd be challenging too. And to see so many of you react positively toward it, well, I think it really made both our months. So thanks. And if you want to make this month for us, or at least this week, please consider heading over to podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single cent's greatly appreciated. It keeps us going, helps us pay our authors, and allows us to put off, maybe even erase our own personal Ragnarok. Thank you. That's all we have for this week. Thanks for letting all of us here at Podcastle tell you another story. Next time, well, I think we'll bring back Rachel Swarsky, albeit in a slightly different capacity, so she can fold you all into her loving embrace. Until then, we hope if the world looks up at you and whispers, Save us! You won't say no. That way, we'll be able to see you all in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. James Allen said, Dream lofty dreams, and as you dream, so you shall become. Your vision is the promise of what you shall one day be. Your ideal is the prophecy of what you shall at last unveil.